You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. Last week, we brought you the first half of our interview with futurist, author, and founder of Long Path, Ari Wallach. This week, we're picking up where we left off. Ari provides insight on the deep cultural and economic divides within America, gives predictions for the future of America's workforce, and shares strategies we can implement now to lay better groundwork for the generations to come. As always, thanks for listening, and here's Elisa. When you spend some time in the Midwest and you drive through these Rust Belt towns and you see what was a once a dignified culture, if you took a template of where the opioid crisis was occurring and you laid it on top of these areas that were just cast aside because of corporate America, it would line up almost exactly. And that is so, so we've done that, by the way, we've literally overlaid heat maps of opioid deaths of despair, which, you know, the folks out of Princeton looked at voting patterns, jobs that shifted because of NAFTA, which, by the way, was under a Democrat. Probably like it's almost 100 percent alignment. Yeah, I can see that. And I do think that there is a category of person who feels absolutely left behind and ignored and they're getting loud. And it also makes me think, though, that we have been in times, you know, Germany certainly was impoverished and downtrodden in the moment when Hitler was able to rise and looking for an enemy to blame. It's all culture. Every every culture over time. Every culture has done that. Right. The other thing that I think has distinguished the United States is we've never really been a meaningful sectarian society. We've had, as I said, some sort of commonality. We certainly identified as Americans for the most part, even African-American people who were severely discriminated against, even Jewish people who experienced widespread anti-Semitism, largely still identified as Americans. And we had this. And I do think we've reached a time where there is a category of person who is casting backwards and looking for a golden era that may actually never have existed as they imagine it. And they're angry. And I think that that is acutely destabilizing. And I think it is reminiscent of a lot of what we see in the Middle East. And that is deeply concerning. And I feel that they have not just been ignored by one political party. I feel like everyone has ignored and devalued the things that they've done. And you're right. I think if anybody had thought forward on what the consequences of that might be, you could create a very angry, radicalized class of people through that sort of national political neglect. If we think about the impact and role of identity, and it's, it's funny, it, you know, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm a, I'm a Biden, Obama, Clinton guy, right? And so people keep talking, well, there's so much identity politics on the left. But the it's interesting, when I think about the right in this country, and in some ways on, on the left, the you, identity politics are across the board. And I, I'm going to pull this out of the, the political and say, the big questions that we ask ourselves as humans, more often than not, and not just when we're, you know, young, but throughout our entire life are two questions, like, who am I? And why am I here? Right? In one way or another, that's how every major religion has arisen because they provide an answer to that question, those very existential deep, that's the non-silver lining of having a large prefrontal cortex is you're going to ask these very deep questions around meaning and purpose. It's what pulled us out of the trees, allowed us to work together, to get meat and do all those things. But what's going to happen is eventually we're going to ask, who am I and why am I here? The successful nations and empires and companies and religions and families and organizations 
have changed and tweaked that question to go from who am I and why am I here to who are we and why are we here? We used to answer that question in this country. We had a narrative of what our role was in the world. Then you saw, to your point, the kind of hollowing out of entire communities where their identity was connected to who they were and why they were there. It was to build the air conditioners and the cars and the things that made America work for everyone else. You take that away and you leave folks highly discombobulated and dislocated. And they are looking still though, to answer the question, who are we and why are we here? And I, what I can tell you is in these intertidal moments that we are in, that America's in and the world is in right now, we cannot exist in a vacuum where that question is not being answered for us or let's say with us. And that is when you see the rise of authoritarian strongmen. I can give you that answer. The greatest tagline in history is not, you know, Nike, just do it. It was brilliant. It was make America great again, because there was a retro futurist angle to it, which was there was glory behind us and we will bring that glory back. And this moment that you were in, where you were in kind of deep psychological wounded pain because of the loss of jobs. And by the way, this is not a race issue. It's actually more of a class issue in many ways, blue collar in that sense. The loss of that makes the country and those populations and all of us unbelievably susceptible to a kind of kind of evisceration from within because we're not willing to answer that question in a way that takes care of the home front we're still thinking about this kind of globalization from the 90s and what that can lead to. And now we find ourselves in this blowback moment where folks no longer have that sense of purpose and meaning. And if we don't find one, and by the way, I don't think going up against China is the answer. I know some people listening will hate hearing that because I don't think that that will actually be the answer as we move towards kind of a planetary civilization. We're going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. You know, and I thought one of the things I liked in your book was, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, this Make America Great line or slogan, it's it's had an earlier use. And that use was in the run-up to World War II, when, you know, the Nazis were engaged in a foreign influence campaign. And it appeared at that time that it was targeted at the portions of the country that had not recovered from the Great Depression. And those are a lot of the same areas that are suffering right now. Even Father Coughlin up in Detroit would, you know, toss that phrase around. And we've all come to learn that a guy named Viertek, you know, spearheaded Hitler's foreign influence campaign and, and sold that notion in the very same areas of the United States that have found resonance this go round. I do want to go back, though, for just a second, which is that if this is a cycle that we have seen before, it also leads me to an idea that we can teach people to take a longer term view. And I understand the idea that some people have to think short term. They're living from paycheck yep. to paycheck. Yep. The other thing is they've been raised and have a certain level of an executive functioning that for whatever reason, they have no coaching in this. They really don't know how to do it. It's not organic to them given their upbringing. But I'm wondering just as a practical matter, how this idea gets pushed out to people who aren't sitting inside the beltway who you know, shop at Walmart when they can, and which by the way, I think is a great place to shop, but who are just trying to get by 
And they're in a cycle because they can't think long-term because they're having to survive, right? That, that, that tiger is out there looming and they've got to concentrate on that, not what they're going to eat a week from now. So we've talked a little bit about the brain. How can we train people or how can we get people to think in these terms who don't organically do so? It's a great question. Organically, most of us don't do this. It's actually, it can be actually difficult, myself included. Some people were surprised in the book. I used some kind of personal examples. One of them was kind of like, I got about an argument that I get into with my wife and it really has to do not about the actual example of what happened, but about something much, much deeper that goes to my parents, my grandparents and whatnot. This, this was the Trader Joe's. Anecdote. This is the Trader Joe's, how my wife. Everyone understands the, that. And <laughs> that every, guy, I get I get more comments about that section of the book than almost anything else. And there's a couple of practical things. You know, I, I use some examples in the book and I'm, I'm going to start with those that are kind of simple to grasp and then I'll, and I'll get more theoretical in a certain sense. So it might sound out there, but all the stuff that's in the book and that we do is all kind of research back with the folks on the, our advisory board from Stanford, Northeastern, all these great places that are doing amazing research in this work. And what we found is two things block people from thinking about the long-term, well, more than two things. So there's, there's systemic things like quarterly earnings and two-year budgetary cycles and whatnot. So we, we talked about that. But one of the things that blocks people from doing long-term thinking and planning is actually the unbelievable disconnection between your current self and your future self. So Hal Hirschfield at UCLA did these experiments where he put people into an fMRI machine where you can actually see the basically oxygen flow so you know what parts of the brain are being activated. And he asked them to think about themselves right now and then to think about a famous person. And then he asked them to think about themselves 10 years from now. And the part of the brain that lit up for the famous person was the same part that lit up for them thinking about themselves. That's how disconnected they were to themselves 10 years from now. And so what he did was pulled, you know, pulled out a machine and he has two groups, one, the control group, the other group, he had them look at a photo of themselves age 10 years, one, and two, just write a letter to their future self that would be sent to them, you know, a year from now. And this is all based on kind of neuroplasticity that we don't just stop learning when we hit 18, thank God, but that we, we keep learning the brain, the things that fire together, wire together. And what he found were the folks that did these very small things, just looking at a photo of themselves age or writing a letter to their future themselves or thinking about it in that way, when given these kind of very academic studies where how much money do they want to put away in a savings account? Like, it was off the charts, right? They put more money away. They wanted to lose more. They lost more weight. They ate better because they now they were better connected to their future self. Then the question becomes, how do we do that at scale? So one, I, you know, my first thing is write a book about this and get out there and talk to folks like you about it. But then two is thinking about our future self literally in the moment between and this is, this is the brain side of it, between something happening, you know, between an action and a reaction, there's like literally a quarter second sometimes or a one second. Thinking to yourself, is whatever decision I'm about to make, making me a great ancestor? And there's a lot of hubris in that question. I understand that, but that's okay because what that starts to do is it starts to get you to actually think about future generations and your own future self. So you don't need to have unbelievable amounts of political or financial power to kind of start thinking about how your actions impact the great ancestors about future generations. But I'll give you a sneak behind, a look behind the curtain. It's also about yourself. It's also about how you're taking care of yourself and making decisions that aren't highly reactive. And so the fact of the matter is just being aware of short-termism is in and of itself 
80% of the battle is recognizing that it's this unnamed, you know, Carolyn Dweck, who does the growth mindset, she did this amazing, you know, so we all know the growth mindset. If we have kids or we've, we've done any corporate organizational offsite, the, the growth mindset is that we keep growing, especially if we add this one term to the end of a thing. So instead of saying, I'm not a good dancer, you add the word yet to it. So I'm not a good dancer yet, right? So, so Dweck did, they did this research where they explained what I just explained to you in 15 seconds. And that was the control group. And there was another group where they ran them through like a six month curriculum on the growth mindset. And you know what happened? Those who just had that really small, like 15 second intervention, that there's this thing where you can kind of keep growing by adding yet to it, had some of the same results as the people who went through this really deep kind of education pedagogy around the growth mindset. So even being made aware that short-termism is a thing in and of itself starts to change how you react in very simple to very complex decision-making moments. Again, be it family room or situation room. And so for the folks who, and look, by the way, I come from a place of privilege to even have this conversation and to think and, and say that. And for people who are working and who are barely making a buy on a dollar a day, they are going to be living very much in a short-termism stance. It's incumbent upon us who are not in that situation to make decisions so there are fewer and fewer people who are in that situation in the first place. And to kind of take it back up to this, right, keep going to national security. If you want to have true national security and you want to think about America, you know, September 19th, 3022, a thousand years from now, right? I think it'll be a, a Wednesday. Right. If you if you really want to take that really long-term view, because we're a very young country, but a thousand years is that's like nothing. It's a blink of an eye, especially among other kind of civilizations on the planet. Then one of the kind of key things that we have to be going for is to ensure that the folks that we're talking about who are really kind of living in the moment by moment, that their numbers drop precipitously. Why? It's the moral thing to do, one. But two, from a national security perspective, the fewer people there are, and hopefully we can even bring that down to zero at some point, the least likely we are to have the inequality in the, in the power dynamics that lead to us having to have a security stance in the first place. So it's at our own, look, what you want to be doing from a national security perspective is doing everything you can to put yourself out of business, right? That's what you want to do. All your decisions should be getting you to a point where the apparatus that we have, be it General Dynamics or Boeing, Lockheed, all these companies that I've spoken with no longer have to exist or they exist doing something outside of kind of kinetics because we've gotten to a point where the those tensions are not there in the way that they have been in the past. That does sound a bit utopian. And I would That's why like, I gave you a thousand years. <laughs> I'm going a thousand years. That's fine. But I, I want to come back for just a second to United States right now. We have seen setbacks, but I mentioned this last week when I was talking to one of my colleagues on the committee that, you know, Tocqueville has observed, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think it was something along the lines of the greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than other nations, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. When I look at us, I think I see a country probably more resilient than almost any other in the world to begin with by its nature and by the diversity of its population and our sort of spirit of inventiveness. But I also wonder when I look out at the world, if there is any culture or any country, a nation that has taken the long path as a part of its own culture and views. Have you seen that? 
Yes, and I'll give you a, a couple of examples. One of the first ones, and again, none of these examples are ever perfect, to be clear, is I look at South Africa after, quote unquote, after apartheid and the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions and the ability to find a mechanism to have very kind of public conversations about what happened, how they got to this point, and where they want to go as a country and have it in a very serious, again, I'm not saying it was perfect, far from it, and they are not totally there yet, but it was it was both the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that they had, as well as little less known, uh, they did a bunch of scenario planning, actually, and about what the futures of South Africa be, and each one was named after a bird, and one of them, the one that kind of gripped the imagination of the country was, was the flamingo scenario, which is, if you've ever seen a flamingo take flight, it's kind of starts off running awkwardly. It looks like it's going to, it's very clumsy. It looks like it's going to kind of fall on its face, but eventually it takes flight and it's very graceful and beautiful, right? And so that that's one example of kind of thinking and taking kind of long-term thinking and planning seriously that includes the past. The other one, this might be surprising, is Germany, right? They put into their curriculum a very straightforward way of talking about World War II and the Holocaust. And importantly, they left the camp, whereas many countries would have torn the camps down, they left them up and they're saying, we're going to take our school kids there. We're going to have conversations about this. We are going, you know, there's, when you walk around Berlin, I did a few years ago, there are plaques up and say, you know, this used to be a Jewish home. This is where the rabbi lived. It could be a store now, but they acknowledge that and they put the memorial to the Holocaust right in the middle of Berlin. So they're saying, this is, this is what it's going to be. And then a third example, and, and, and there's many, I'll take one example from this country because there's so many from this country is Japan. One of the things that they do that is fascinating is they have these things called tsunami stones. When a tsunami happens, you know, obviously the water comes into these, to these towns and villages on the water and rises to a very high level. And that level could be 30, 40 feet from, from sea level, right? And what they do is, They'll put stones there from these massive tsunamis that happened hundreds of years ago, and they'll basically say, do not build below this line. This, this can happen. The water can go this high. And it's a reminder of that where when you think things are common, you think they're kind of in a certain steady weight, steady state, that things can actually dramatically change very quickly. And a reminder what I said earlier about this kind of end of history illusion and fallacy for ourselves, that it's not always going to be kind of smooth sailing, if you will. So those are kind of three examples of nations who have, who have kind of looked at this in a very kind of serious way about kind of how do they move forward and learn from their mistakes. It's interesting because there were one of the things that has been discussed, for example, was reparations for slavery Yep. in the United States. There has been a more open dialogue about it. I think with respect to what has happened to manufacturing and the various people who've supported it, I think there's going to have to be some sort of reconciliation to their loss at some point, because I do think that that has really destroyed them and left them disenfranchised in yep. ways that are highly destabilizing to the United States and that we and other people can exploit. I would like to see that. I'm also, I, I have to say, I think an introduction of more long path thought could occur as some of these areas become re-enfranchised through the return of manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So I think at that point, we may be able to see a time when they would be more open to the concept of thinking forward to being a great ancestor. 
So I would like to see that. And of all things, it seems to me that there are two things that have given rise to that recently, neither of which I don't think any of us could have predicted, except if we worked, I suppose, at NIH or something. But the first one was the COVID pandemic and how China responded to that when it had always been a place for companies to bloat their profits for shareholders and where they had out, you know, offshored all these great jobs from within America. And the second thing is, I think we still haven't felt the full impact on our consumption of fossil fuels, including LNG and and gasoline from this Ukraine war. I, I still think that we're grasping exactly what this could mean. And I think that the time for that will be this winter when I think Europe is going to suffer greatly. And I'm hoping that that will change the minds of Americans about how they see their relationship to these things. And then I think it'll have another positive benefit that will allow people to then open their minds to things like long path, which I think will be obviously a change and a focus on alternatives. It's the way that we have been living and those alternatives will help slow what is happening to the climate. I actually see these terrible, terrible things as forcing Americans wherever they live and whoever they are to have to change their relationship with some of the very things that have destroyed us and frankly, have made us acutely vulnerable in terms of our national security, where we have come to depend on countries that are run by people we would never want in our homes or to have you know, our children to ever marry because they're so awful. And yet we keep them rich. We keep them fat and happy by our consumption. And I think we're in a position right now where that could rather seismically change. I think, look, we talked earlier about kind of meaning and purpose and national unity. And I think you're spot on. What I foresee, what I'd like to foresee, what I'm kind of hoping to make happen in the work that I do around Long Path in other ways is obviously I talk about, you know, this unity purpose through becoming a great ancestor. That's one level. But at a, at a more kind of banal economic market driven, I think the transition from an extractive fossil fuel based economy, which is kind of runs our entire economy towards a clean, regenerative economy, not just sustainable, but regenerative, where what we're doing is literally actually helping the earth heal, is also helping individuals heal and find meaning and purpose. So what does that mean? That sounds great in theory. What regenerative economics looks like in terms of manufacturing in the Midwest is that folks are now able to make machinery and appliances and the kind of the heavy things that we need not just code, because we always want to just teach these people how to code, but actual things that we need that are helping restore the environment, restore real jobs, restore communities, and make them more strong and more vital. And I'm not saying let's return to the 1950s, where it's just, you know, it's what I'm saying is we can rethink economics and how we work as a country in a planet, never use the word, I never use utopia, it's, it's what we call protopian, which is, and I made it sound utopian earlier, but it's really protopian, which is a better tomorrow than today, right? So better tomorrow than today, economics that are regenerative, so that people see themselves as part of what I call kind of the great transition from, and this is, you know, what got you here won't get you there. So look, by the way, Fossil fuels, great. It gave me, you know, the ability to be able to call my daughter on the phone because there's plastics in my phone. I get that. But as we start to move into a stance where we're no longer thinking about the just the year 
2022, but 3022, 4022, we recognize that those things that got us here that lifted hundreds of millions, if not billions out of poverty and got us to a point where, you know, I can get a cut on my forehead like I got the other day and I can put something on there and I don't die of an infection. Like these are all great things, but now we're gonna have to move into what Buckminster Fuller called a different stance from thinking of ourselves as passengers on spaceship earth to thinking of ourselves as crew on spaceship earth. And what that means is literally rethinking how people are going to work and find purpose and meaning in their own individual lives and in their communities in a kind of way that allows us to avoid 1984, avoid Brave New World, and move into something that we haven't yet actually seen written yet, but we know that we all want. That is a beautiful idea of the future. And I would like for us to go in that direction. And I think because we're social creatures and because we so depend on one another more than we care to admit, I think the possibility of approaching the planet where we live with that view of stewardship is a possibility. I also think it can give a lot of relevance to people who have come to feel of themselves as irrelevant. One of the things that I think is going to be interesting to see is as all of this manufacturing returns, we are seeing exactly what you describe. We're seeing a commitment from the major automobile companies to stop the manufacture of combustion engines and go to you know, the use of renewable batteries. I will tell you, it must be pretty popular because I know I recently ordered one of these cars and the wait list was 10 months. Yep. And But this is extremely an- encouraging. I would like to see this. As soon as we think about this, though, I think it's also important that we see past what this next iteration of our sort of relevance is going to look like. And I do imagine that there's going to be a time when there is almost no manufacturing of any kind. And what we do in terms of interacting with each other and how we survive and exist on this planet is going to take a form that we can't possibly imagine while we sit here. And whatever that is, I hope that it's one in which we can find uh, values and unity and that we have respect for people who struggle and try to bring them up as best we all can. Look, I think you are correct. And I will not argue with the, that we, this part of this transition will lead to, again, I don't know, many decades from now or many centuries from now, you know, think about how much time you know, 10,000 years ago, we spent looking for food. It was like literally 95% of our day, right? Was that the other time was like running from things, right? But most of it was just hunting or gathering. That's what we did. If we could go back and say, oh, by the way, you know, you spent half your day chasing the herd. Now you're going to get into this thing and go to the market and it's going to get this shrink wrap piece of steak. It would, it would seem, it would be magic. They would laugh you out of the Serengeti. We will have something similar folks will look back on. And so the question is, as we navigate this moment, what are we doing to A, ensure those folks can at least kind of look back on us and say, thanking us for what we did, that we are kind of great ancestors. But to your point is recognizing that this transition is ongoing, but we have to have a conversation and we're we're having it right now on this podcast, but a larger conversation, I don't know where it's going to come from. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push it in my own way, of, and this is the last part of the book, is telos, ultimate aim and goal. What is it that we want to get to, right? Because we talked about kind of meaning and purpose in manufacturing jobs. That's a 20, 30, maybe 40 year thing. What comes after that? 
right? I mean, if you go, right. if you look at a Tesla factory right now, there's less and less humans there, right? To making these cars, it's robotics. Now, the fact is we'll probably move into, you know, smaller scale cities and walkable cities and, you know, in Europe, they call 15 minute cities. That's one part of the conversation, but you're, you're asking the, 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 I think the most important question, because from there we can kind of get more values alignment, which is what is the world that we actually want to see manifest? That sounds very spiritual, something you would hear at church or synagogue or mosque, but we're actually a Stuart brand, the kind of big futurist who did the whole earth catalog used to say, we're as powerful as gods. We might as well start acting like it and thinking like it. And I'm not saying we can do that right now, but as we go out and we're investing hundreds of millions of dollars in biotech and, and quantum and all these technologies, both physical, hardware, software, and even you know spiritual technologies, if you will, we got to start at some point asking the question, and I got at this a little bit earlier, but really start asking the question is like, to what end? And I'm not, uh, I often I get asked this, like, well, okay, you raised to what end? What should the end be? I have no idea. To me, I put it under this umbrella of human flourishing, because that's my way of saying, like, let's use that as a little bit of a North Star. But the reality is there will be people in the futures who actually want to do like woodworking all day, even though it could be done by a robot or who want to paint or who want to argue or debate or lawyer or practice medicine. And some won't. The fact of the matter is we're going to have to find a, a language, a way of being together that's values-based as we move into a post-work, post-scarcity, abundance-based economy that is regenerative. That is not something that I'm predicting will happen. I think we have a long way to go to getting there, but we have to have the conversation of what that looks like and what's, in, get, what's getting in the way of us getting there. And if we do want to get there, certain things are not to have. And you know, what I often say, I was, I was, I, I'm in these kind of policy working groups for foundations and some political stuff. And I, and I said this earlier, it's time to pull up our big boy and big girl pants, you know, and, say, and like put them on and say like, what is it that we're actually doing here? Uh, and that we want to do, as opposed to being unbelievably short-term and reactive. And like, did you read the newspaper? Did you see what happened on social media? Did you see that tweet? If we do that, I don't know if we really make it in, in any really great way, shape, or form over the next several decades. Because that that may be a termination point for a species if they just can't lift their head out of their screen and just react to every tweet. But if we can actually take a bigger picture point of view and actually start having those conversations as a country or as a planet, then something very interesting starts to happen. You know, one possibility here is that Gen Z gets sick of it and they decide to abandon it in droves. I would, based on the polling and the survey work that I've seen from Gen Z, I put that not at a zero chance. Like there's a pot that you're already kind of starting to see that, right? The problem is they're locked into a system of mortgages and cars and cities and rents and all these things. And I'm not a, everything should be free for everyone kind of person. because I don't think that works in general, but you are seeing a certain rejection. I think COVID accelerated that. People are like, wait a second, why am I going in 60 hours a week? But my boss is barely ever coming in. He or she is like vacation doing, I'm like, it, it's not making sense anymore. And on top of that, to an earlier point, look what all of this is doing to the planet. And there's an awareness of that in a way that goes beyond the way I was raised in the 90s around kind of Greenpeace and sustainability, and but something much, much bigger. Now, the issue will become, because that's Gen Z, which is huge in numbers, but not huge in voting power vis-a-vis -vis boomers, right? So in, in 2030, every boomer will be over the age of 65, 
And that entire cohort will have so much wealth and political power that the decisions they make or don't make will have unbelievably large impact on Gen Z who may feel a certain way, but isn't showing up to vote and doesn't have the, the financial power to do it. This calls something in from my bio that we, we, didn't, we didn't mention because it's not necessarily connected to the book. In 2008, then-Senator Obama was kind of getting obliterated in Florida with a lot of kind of like anti-Muslim rhetoric and all this, this terrible stuff. And I was trying to work to get him elected. And what we realized was the campaign wasn't able to kind of break through in a traditional way. So myself and a friend got together with the comedian Sarah Silverman, and we created this thing called The Great Schlep. And so Sarah Silverman, the comedian, did this three-minute video that was telling young Jews to go to Florida to talk to their grandparents, to kind of vote for Senator, you know, why Obama was good for the Jews and good for the planet and good for the country. One of the big takeaways from that, and you see that a little bit in Long Path, in this idea of kind of transgenerational empathy and connection, especially in this country, do not have intergenerational conversations the way we used to. And so it's going to be incumbent upon Gen Z if they want to see a certain direction for the country and the world happen, that yes, you can you can protest, you can vote and do certain things, but it's going to be incumbent upon them to start having conversations with their grandparents and with their elders and not just lambasting them saying, how could you have done this to us? But having a two-way conversation about what does it mean to have a legacy? What does it mean to have heirlooms that aren't just furniture and jewelry, but values and ways of being. And I and what so what gives me hope is we're starting to see those kind of conversations happening, but we're going to have to see those happen in an accelerated format, given just to be very mundane, like electoral map politics over the next, you know, two to three cycles. These are brilliant thoughts. I would like to see a greater interaction anyway between Gen Z and yep. these boomers, because I think it's good for everyone to have those conversations, even away from long path. I also think that, you know, when we look at persons susceptible to influence on social media, the older they are and the more rural, the more likely they are to believe absolute nonsense. And I think an interaction with younger people is a helpful thing that can write that to a degree or help moderate it. So th- these are great thoughts, but they were so great. My dog agreed, as you could just That's, hear. I mean, you know, I, I, I like, I like <laughs> transgenerational agreement. I like interspecies agreement. I'm, I'm, I'm open to all levels of accolades here. We'll agree for treats. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. It's... <laughs> this conversation I could have forever. And I, I'm so, you can't stop with this book. It, it's been very important to me. And it, it, I'm not, I want everybody to understand this is like a new, not a new agey guru no. substitution for religion. This is something else entirely. I've never read anything quite like it. And it's not long is the other thing. You know, you get these amazing thoughts out and what is really a, a pretty compact package delivery it's a compact yep. package and it and yep. it's well written it's entertaining i just think it's acutely important and i sincerely hope that as we go forward we see how people think about implementing this really big vision of how we should all be thinking and behaving into the way we conduct ourselves as americans and the way in which we think of ourselves in our relationship to the climate and to other countries and I think in that regard, we would enhance and protect our own national security. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People want to read the book and reach out. I'm, you know, I go, I've, I've already spoken at some unnamed 
agencies and other places about this. As has been clear by this conversation, I'm not an expert in national security or in any way, shape, or form, but these are the things that I think about. I, I, I look at this as an, you know, my mom used to have this expression, kind of like, look at these large issues as if though you're an anthropologist, but from Mars, right? Going back to Mars again, like, think about how humans work, what we need, what makes sense, but be neutral in the sense that you're, you don't want to push one agenda or another. The agenda you want to push is what makes us better, what makes us stronger, what makes us more resilient, especially in difficult times. That was the impetus for writing a book like this. Well, and, and I think you've successfully done it. So I am especially glad that you came on our podcast to talk about this. That's my pleasure. Look, if folks want, obviously the book, you can get that, the audiobook. I read the audiobook for better or for worse. And you can go to longpath.org. You can sign up for the newsletter. We're starting to actually do these things called long path gathers where people come together, talk about the book. We're, we're kind of hands off about it, but it's kind of like a book club plus plus. Counter to everything I just said, these are actually starting up in some social media companies, which is interesting, where they're kind of wrestling with some of these ways of thinking about themselves and people's actions in the world. And so I hope if... Look, if people don't read the book, so be it. I hope you got something out of this conversation. I'm sure you did because I'm an amazing interviewer. But if you do read it and you find it interesting, you can, you know, you can reach out, Ari at longpath.org. I actually answer and read these emails and wrestle with these things all the time because that dialectic makes my thinking sharper and better. And, and some of what you've heard from me today, even if you disagree with it, is thinking that has come about by having conversations with people over just over the past couple of weeks who've been responding to the book from different sectors, from industry, from someone from the Chamber of Commerce reached out to me. Like that's that's how we move forward as a species in this kind of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and we keep moving. So in no way, shape, or form is this book the kind of final say in this. It's kind of an opening salvo, if you will, in how we should, I think, be thinking about our role and what we can be doing this moment in time. And it's all good. Our guest tonight has been Ari Wallach, author of Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs. Ari Wallach is a futurist and a social system strategist and the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs, which is an initiative focused on bringing long-term thinking and coordinated behavior to individual organizational and societal realms in order to ensure that humanity flourishes on an ecologically thriving planet for centuries to come. Ari, it's been great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. You can also find Ari's TED Talk on Long Path that we will hyperlink. It's been viewed at this point by 2.5 million people, or at least 2.5 million times, and translated into 19 languages. We will also hyperlink to Ari's website and to some other things that he has written. And I would encourage you to take a look at our notes. Thanks for tuning in to NSLT. You can find all these links in our notes, as well as Ari's bio and where to purchase this book. Now at NSLT, I just want to thank you for tuning in. We don't take your time or attention for granted. We ask that you share this episode with a friend and maybe discuss some of the issues raised in Long Path and how they're key to our national and global security. And remember, we're going to have a conference on national security law coming up in November. If you're interested in attending that conference, you can also find a registration link in our notes. 
We also like to get feedback because that's how we get better here at an SLT. So send us a comment at Twitter at ABA NATSEC, or you can send us an email. That's pretty simple. National Security and American Bar.org. Our producer is me, Elisa Poteet. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. And my other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all of the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.